0: Our passage this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, continuing through to verse 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, and not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service, coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you, too, should be glad and rejoice with me.
1: Well, good morning. I'm Dwayne Gray, as you probably heard by now, (laughs) one of the elders here at Cole Community Church. Today, we continue to study Paul's letter the church in Philippi, beginning with chapter 2, verse 12. This passage contains a difficult verse, and for some reason our teaching pastors and all of the substitutes have all left this weekend. (laughs) Well, actually I exaggerate, Uh, they did leave town, but uh, they would have loved to teach this challenging passage. Before we begin, let's open with prayer. Father, we are grateful for this passage of Scripture before us this morning. Please open our hearts and minds. Make us sensitive to your leading so that we can understand Paul's meaning and understand how to apply it in our lives today. Amen. Most of you are aware, because of all the news coverage, that six days ago, July 20th, was the 40th anniversary of the first moon landing. What's less well known is that July 22nd, was the 47th anniversary of the launch of Mariner 1, America's first spacecraft designed to travel to another planet. The Mariners were part of a space program to, to visit all of the planets of the inner solar system, Mercury, Venus, and Mars. And in those days, of course, the United States was engaged in a space race with the USSR. In 1960, the Soviets launched two spacecraft toward Mars... Both of them failed. In 1961, the Soviets tried again with two more spacecraft, this time to Venus. The first one failed to leave Earth orbit, and the second one, well, they lost contact with it on the way to Venus. Finally, in 1962, it was our turn. The USA was ready to launch its first interplanetary space probe. On July 22nd, Mariner 1 blasted off destination Venus. However, less than five minutes after launch, the spacecraft veered off course and had to be destroyed by the range safety officer. Post-accident investigations revealed that because a hyphen was omitted from a computer program, Mariner 1 locked on to the wrong signal for guidance and caused it to swerve off course. Mariner 1 was designed to soar majestically into the heavens, but instead it plunged into the Atlantic. Now Mariner 1 is an example of what can happen when you misunderstand your instructions and follow the wrong guidance. You can end up in altogether the wrong place. Well, this morning we have a difficult passage in Philippians. And with the lesson of Mariner 1 in mind, let's work hard to properly understand Paul's instructions to us so that we don't go astray. Now, because of the nature of the passage, I have two objectives. The first objective is to explain the meaning of the passage, at least to the extent that I understand it, and explore how it applies to us today. And the second objective is to explain a little bit how to work through a difficult passage of Scripture so that when you read the Bible during your own study time, you can develop a better understanding. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Now, I believe that Paul wrote this section to give his friends in Philippi some specifics about how to demonstrate their obedience to God by loving others and maintaining unity. Verses 12 to 13 talk about our work. Verses 14 to 16a talk about our character. Verses 16b to 18 talk about our joy. So keep that in mind as we work our way through these seven verses. First, we'll look at Christian work. The passage begins this way. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Well, I need to stop here in the middle of the sentence to examine something important. It's a guidepost that will help us to understand what this passage is saying, where it came from and where it's going. And we need to pay attention to these guideposts so we don't stray off course. The sentence begins with, so then, in the New American Standard, and therefore, in the NIV. And whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is the therefore Therefore, It points to the text that precedes it and indicates that what we are about to read is a result of the previous passage. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul has encouraged the Philippians to be humble and to regard others as more important than themselves. Actually, we can track this theme even farther back. In verse, or chapter 1, verse 27, he encourages them to be of one mind, striving together. And in the personal section of 1, 12 to 20, Paul is himself an example of considering others as more important than himself. Then in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, he gives them the example of Jesus who humbled himself and obeyed the Father's will even to the point of death on the cross for the sake of others. Passages later in the letter also echo this theme of caring for the welfare of others. Now, for those of you who would like a challenge for your study time this week, read the rest of the letter and and locate the other places where Paul notes this theme of caring for others. I found four instances, and if you want to know what those four are, well, you'll be able to find them on the coldcommunity.org website, on the page with the recording of this sermon under the heading Sermon Extras. I'm not going to tell you this morning. (laughs) Now, your count could differ from mine depending on how narrowly or broadly you define the theme, but for heaven's sake, whatever we do, let's not get into heated arguments about how many times Paul calls on us to love one another and live in harmony. Now, in verse 12, just after he's provided the supreme example of Jesus, Paul turns back to the Philippians and says, So then... And by that he means, now that you have read my exhortations and read an example of what I mean about being obedient to Christ, obedient to God, humbling yourselves and caring for others, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Well, again, I can't finish the sentence because we've got something else interesting to examine. Paul says that they have not only obeyed while he was with them, but they have obeyed while he was away. Epaphroditus, about whom we read in chapter 2, later here in chapter 2, apparently had reported that the church was remaining true to the gospel even during Paul's absence. Now, it's often said that the true measure of character is what you do when no one is looking. Well, the Philippians proved the measure of their character. Now, wouldn't it be great if that could be said about each of us, that... We remain obedient to Christ, whether anyone is watching or not. He continues the sentence with this phrase, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this is a passage that we must work diligently to understand what Paul meant so that we don't end up off course like Mariner One. In fact, this particular verse has caused enough confusion over the years that it appears in books devoted to difficult passages in Scripture. What does Paul mean when he says to work out your salvation? Is he saying that we need to work to gain our salvation? When you run into a difficult verse like this, there are several things you can do to develop a better understanding of it. Now, I know that some of you here this morning, uh, these study techniques I'm about to summarize are all friends to you, but perhaps for some, these techniques are not well known. First of all, when you approach a passage, pray that God would help you understand it. Now, God invites us to pray for wisdom. He also calls us to read Scripture and ponder it, so read the passage and the surrounding context multiple times and think about it to make sure that you have it well fixed in your mind. Then you can start digging into the details. You can begin by looking up the meaning of the words in the original language, Greek in this particular case, now, I dare say that most of us here in this auditorium, when faced with a passage full of Greek text, you just throw up your hand and say, it's all Greek to me. But thankfully, there are helpful tools to those of us English speakers. You can use a concordance to look up the word in English and find out what the original Greek, text or Greek word is. You can also use a Bible dictionary to look up the word. If you're really adventurous, use a word study dictionary or lexicon to find some of the most interesting helpful definitions. Then to get a broader understanding of a word, you can go to a concordance or lexicon to look up other places in Scripture where this word shows up. If your Bible has cross-references, sometimes they're very helpful in looking at p- other passages that help to illuminate the meaning of this difficult passage. Now, you can do this research the old-fashioned way with you know, real books paper, or you can buy one of se- several helpful computer programs that uh, make this process pretty easy. And when you find yourself really stumped with a passage, it can be helpful to refer to a commentary. With commentaries, you need to be a little bit discerning because there are a wide variety of theological viewpoints represented by commentary writers, ranging from those who believe the Bible is the inspired word of God to those who believe the Bible isn't really what it claims to be. And even among commentators of similar theology, you will find points of disagreement on the more difficult passages. Now, for those of you who uh, who want to get started doing this sort of in-depth study, the church library just out there has a nice selection of reference materials for your use. So let's actually do that. The first word we need to understand is salvation. According to the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, salvation is a translation of the Greek word soteria, which has a general meaning of safety, deliverance, preservation from danger or destruction. In a few cases, it seems to mean welfare or prosperity. It is used in reference to delivery from physical danger, as in Acts 27, 34, where the crew and the passengers of a ship were in danger of shipwreck. It is also used in reference to spiritual danger, delivery from spiritual danger. In the New Testament, salvation is mostly used in reference to deliverance from sin and its spiritual consequences. Consequences of sin include separation from from God, facing his wrath. Now, we who are members of God's family have been saved from that and have been reconciled to God and no longer face his wrath. And I believe Paul is using the word salvation in this particular way in this passage. Next, we need to look up the Greek word that is translated work out. It means to carry out a task until it is finished. It can also mean to produce to create, to be the cause of or author of. So this range of meaning gives us a little bit of difficulty. At one end of the range, we could understand Paul to be saying, create your own salvation, suggesting we can save ourselves by working hard. Well, at the other end of the range, we would understand Paul to be saying that we are to do the works that are appropriate to people who have been saved. When words have a range of meanings, we need to look at the context to understand what the writer meant. In addition, it's extremely helpful to understand who the writer was and see what else he may have written on the subject. And we also want to see what the rest of scripture has to say about a topic. If we believe, as we do, that the Bible is inspired by God, then we can use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So let's let's go back to the immediate context and read verses 12 and 13, and this time we'll do the whole thing all at once. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's set aside that phrase with fear and trembling for now and look at it later. Immediately after the words fear and trembling, we see the word for... This is one of those guideposts that keeps us on course. Because verse 13 begins with the word for, we know that verse 13 was intended to be part of the thought started in verse 12. By looking at verse 13, we see a bit better what Paul is getting at. The Philippians don't have to generate the good works or actions on their own. God is enabling them to do the work. The word used for work here that shows up twice in the NASB and is translated works and to act in the NIV means to work effectually, productively, and to put forth power. In addition, not only does God provide us the power to do the work, he also provides us the will or the desire to do the work. The last part of verse 13, 13 tells us why God does this for us. He provides all of this because he wants to. It is pleasing to Him. And what pleases Him is our salvation. Now that we've looked at verses 12 and 13 and have an idea of the immediate context for the phrase, work out your salvation, let's expand the context a bit and go back to chapter 1, verse 6. Paul writes there, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God started the good work in their lives and continues to work in their lives, enabling them to do the work that he has called them to do. Then later in the letter, in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul writes, Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here Paul clearly states that his standing with God is not of his own work but comes from God based on Paul's faith. So from the context of the letter we see that it is unlikely that Paul meant to say that we can earn our salvation through our work. This becomes even clearer when we consider what he says about salvation in his other letters. The classic passage is Ephesians 2, 8-10 where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here we see that we have not been saved because of our works, but we have been saved as a gracious gift of God. As a result, we can do the good works that God has prepared for us. In fact, that is an expectation that we will do the good works as a result of our salvation, and because God has empowered us to do them. In summary, by looking at the context and comparing other writings by the same author, we are able to narrow down the possible range of meanings for the phrase, work out your salvation. In this context, it could not mean that we are to earn our salvation. It's not consistent with the surrounding context and it's not consistent with Paul's other writings on the same subject. Now, after going through this process and doing other research, I've come to the conclusion that work out your salvation means this. Do the things that are the proper result of being saved. Make your salvation fruitful. Or to quote Philippians one twenty-seven, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And specifically in this particular context, Paul is talking about working hard to live in harmony with one another. Now we get back to the phrase with fear and trembling. Now isn't it interesting that the manner in which the Philippians would work out their salvation is with fear and trembling. In contemporary Western evangelical Christianity, we are very familiar with God as our loving Father and Jesus as our friend and Savior, But we sometimes forget that God is also the Lord of the universe and that Jesus will be the judge in the final judgment. Scripture records that people are fearful when they are in the presence of God. There are several examples in the Old Testament, and the New Testament records in Revelation 117 that John fell to the ground in fear of Jesus when he saw him in all of his glory. The Old Testament often calls on us to fear the Lord. For example, Psalm 111.10 says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the Hebrew word for fear and the Greek word for fear both have meanings ranging from fear and terror to reverence and honor. When we talk about fearing God, we generally mean to respect and honor Him. But the emotional being afraid meaning of the word is not completely absent. I've sometimes likened it to the healthy fear a teenage child has for his or her parents, who although they love their child deeply, are worthy of fear if the teenager crosses the line. How often have we heard, my dad would kill me if I did that. Now, fortunately, that's generally an exaggeration. A fear of doing something that would displease the parents is usually healthy because it keeps the child from doing things that would be harmful. Now, the word translated trembling is a word that means trembling with fear. And together, the words fear and trembling emphasize a sense of awe and reverence toward God, which leads the readers to work out their salvation with great diligence and seriousness because they know that God is the one at work in them. Now, balancing this fear and trembling are the final words of verse 13 that remind us that God is pleased to work in us, to enable us to work out our salvation. So, in summary... Verses 12 and 13 can be paraphrased to say... Isn't this a day of paraphrases for me? Therefore, my dear friends, having read my exhortations and having before you the example of Christ's humility and obedient giving of himself for the sake of others, continue your obedience, whether I am there or not. With godly fear, continue to do the works that are the proper result of your salvation. Remember, you are not on your own... God is the one who gives you the desire to do the good works and the one who gives you the power to do them, for such is his good pleasure. Well, that's my understanding of these two verses, at least an approximation of my understanding of these two verses. And I encourage you to study this passage on your own and don't just take my word as definitive. Well, now that Paul has explained what he wants the Philippians, that he wants the Philippians to work, he talks about how they are to work His focus is on Christian character. Starting in verse 14, Paul Paul defines more specifically how he expected the Philippians to work out their salvation. So let's read verses 14 through 16a. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Notice that he does not say things that we are to do. Instead, he talks about our attitude while doing them. To get a good sense of Paul's reasoning, we need to start in the middle of this passage. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The words translate, or the word translated above reproach in the New American Standard or without fault in the NIV and without rebuke in the King James is actually a word meaning without spot, without blemish and figuratively means blameless. The word is used when describing the absence of defects on sacrificial animals, and only an unblemished sacrifice was acceptable or fit to be offered to God. In reference to believers, the word describes how we appear before God because Christ has made us unblemished. This section is a place where, in order to avoid going off course in our interpretation of the passage, we need to understand the background of the phrase, The passage is a reference, believe it or not, to the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, specifically verse 5. Now this song was given to Moses by God just before the Israelites entered the land. God wanted the Israelites to regularly sing the song to remind them of who God is, what he had done for them, and to remind them of their own evil hearts. Verse 5 of Deuteronomy 32 condemns the corruption of the Israelites. In the New American Standard, that verse says, They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Now, the Old Testament version that Paul used was a Greek translation called the Septuagint. If you compare the Greek text of Philippians 2.15 with a Septuagint text of Deuteronomy 32.5, you find that the passages are very similar with an intentional difference injected by Paul. In Deuteronomy, the Israelite people, the people God had redeemed from Egypt and led through the wilderness for 40 years, these people are being condemned. They are not God's children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and perverse generation. In contrast, Paul says to the Philippians, you are God's children, unblemished in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now what is it? that makes the Philippians unblemished and the Israelites blemished. Well, let's go back to verse 14 and read it again now that we know what Paul had in the back of his mind when he was writing this. He had the Israelites. He was thinking of the Israelites in the wilderness. The New American Standard says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The NIV says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. The King James Version says, Do all things without murmurings or disputing. The first word of the pair means murmuring, grumbling, muttering in a low voice. It's a word used several times in the Septuagint to describe the murmurings of Israel against Moses during their time in the wilderness. The second word of the pair is used in the sense of dispute, debate, contention. Now, in in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says that Israel's experience in the wilderness is an example to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So let's look at what God had to say about the grumbling of the Israelites in the wilderness. In Numbers 14, 22 to 23, the Lord says, Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God is really mad. These people had just refused to enter the Promised Land because they had heard this report that there were giants in the land. The people who had lived through the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, who had walked on dry ground through the sea, who had been fed with manna, these are the people who tested God ten times. Now the phrase ten times could mean, or could just be a way of saying many times, But if you read through Exodus and Numbers, you can find that ten episodes of disobedience have actually been recorded. Now, if you're interested in looking them up, again, I will post that list on the website with the sermon extras. I won't give you the list this morning. Now, seven of those ten times of testing, the Bible points out, were episodes of grumbling, complaining, and quarreling. Now, this historical background is important. It shows just how much God is displeased by complaining and grumbling. In Numbers 14, 27, God says to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who who was counted in the census, and who has grumbled against me. God is so upset with their continual complaining that he has sentenced them to death in the wilderness. That's a little bit scary because, you know, frankly, I'm a pretty good complainer when things don't work out to my satisfaction. And I know there's quite a few of you out there who are quite practiced at it as well. And in fact, so many of us are good at it that I sometimes find myself complaining that People complain too much. So, the problem is that when we complain, we demonstrate that we don't trust God to take care of us. The Bible records in Exodus 15:22 that within a few days of the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the people were grumbling against Moses about the lack of drinking water. They had just seen God make dry land in the midst of the water, yet they could not trust him to make water in the midst of the dry land. Besides demonstrating a lack of trust in God, grumbling takes its toll on people. The word Paul uses indicates a behind-the-scenes grumbling and murmuring. I think most of us would agree that this is the most destructive form of complaining. The person we're grumbling about doesn't even know we're doing it and can't defend himself or herself, and, and the grumbling spreads. You know, complaining and grumbling just seems to come naturally to many of us. Perhaps that's why Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know that grumbling and complaining displeases God. The fact is, if we really trust God, like we claim to, we can give him our petitions and concerns and trust him to take care of them. We don't have to grumble and argue to get our way. Now, Paul continues in verse 15 and part of 16 that if you don't grumble and argue, you prove yourselves to be blameless and pure or blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked... And perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. The Greek word for blameless was one used in the Old Testament ti- or in the New Testament times for one who is free from accusation or blame, from the point of view of God and from the point of view of people. And the word translated pure or innocent means unmixed, unadulterated, pure or sincere. In the midst of a world that Paul has described as twisted, corrupt crooked, depraved. We are called to exhibit pure and blameless behavior by not quarreling or disputing. As one commentator put it, we are to do all things without carping self-centered criticisms of any sort, whether spoken or silent. Now my favorite part of verse 15 is the last phrase. If we live as true children of God, we will, as the NIV, NIV puts it, shine like stars in the universe. I love that. And it's a pretty good translation of the Greek. The world is in darkness and and it needs light. Jesus tells us in Matthew Matthew 5, 14 to 16, that we are the light of the world and that we are to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Like beacons in the darkness, we are to draw people to Christ by living like God's children. Now, Paul is himself an example of this. Acts 16 records during his first visit to Philippi, he and Silas were unjustly thrown into jail, locked into the darkest inner cell. Then about midnight, when things could not have been much darker, both literally and emotionally, all the other prisoners were listening to these new inmates with great wonder. Paul and Silas were not cursing and raging. They were singing praises to God. In the darkness of the night in the darkness of the inner cell, in the darkness of injustice, Paul and Silas were not complaining. They were shining like stars in the universe. Now, the injustices that we face are seldom of the scale that Paul and Silas faced. When you or your child are treated unjustly by a professor or teacher, when your medical insurance claim has an error in it, when your employer treats you shabbily, when there just doesn't seem to be enough money, When someone in your church doesn't treat you well, how do you respond? Do you have a tendency to complain, like I often do? Or are you like Paul, trusting God to take care of you and bearing up without complaining and letting your light shine? At verse 16, we come to the next thing Paul tells the Philippians to do. Believe it or not, verse 16 is still part of the same sentence that started in verse 14. The first thing Paul told them in this sentence was that children of God do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now he adds that children of God hold fast the word of life, as the NESB puts it, or hold out the word of life, as the NIV puts it. Hmm. The word Paul uses can mean hold forth, as in to offer the word of life, or it can mean hold fast as in standing firm, holding on to the word of life commentators disagree on which definition to use. Now, I'm inclined to think that Paul chose that particular word on purpose because it does have the two meanings. As God's children, we have the word of life, both as something we need to hold on to in the midst of this darkened world and as something we offer because we are lights that attract people out of the darkness. In the world is darkness and death, but as children of God, we have light and life and are called to do all things without grumbling and complaining so that we'll shine like stars in the darkness to attract people to light and life. In the next section, Paul talks about Christian joy. Instead of complaining, we're to be joyful. In the next verses, we see Paul's motivation. He explains why he wants the Philippians to live as children of God. In verse 16b, he says, So that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The day of Christ refers to the second coming. At the second coming, Paul wants to have cause to glory, as the NASB puts it, or boast, as the NIV puts it. It seems odd that Paul would use the word boast. Now, Generally, we think of boasting in a negative connotation, but the Bible sometimes uses it uses it in a positive way. In this passage, or in this usage, Paul is like a parent or teacher who has great pride upon seeing how a child has taken instruction to heart and matured into a godly adult. To put it in other words, Paul is saying that when Christ comes, he wants to be able to celebrate or rejoice that his investment in them paid off because the Philippians have lived as children of God in a crooked and perverse world. He uses two words to indicate his dedication and hard work associated with the investment in the Philippians. The first is the word run, an athletic term that Paul uses repeatedly in his letters. He has run hard and for a long time with a goal in mind. He does not want that effort to go to waste. He also describes his efforts as toil, hard work, working to weariness. This word is often used by Paul in reference to Christian work. Again, Paul does not want all of his exertion to go to waste. He wants to see the results of a job well done. Paul's not talking about earning his place in heaven by his labors. He's talking about being able to celebrate the fact that his work bore fruit. He wants the Philippians to be there with him on the day of Christ. In verses 17 and 18, Paul continues with, "...but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith..." I rejoice and share my joy with you all, and you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul now turns to sacrifice as a metaphor. Drink offerings were offerings of wine or olive oil that were poured out as an accompaniment to the burnt offering or sacrifice. Paul, like other writers of the same era, is using the pouring out of a drink offering as a metaphor of the possibility of his own death. In the much later letter, 2 Timothy, Paul uses the drink offering image again, but in that case he knows that his death is imminent. In Philippians, Paul does not expect this imprisonment to end in death, but even if it were to end that way, Paul is saying that expending his life for the Philippians would be worth it. In fact, it would be worthy of joy. Paul is willing for the sacrifice of his own life to be the drink offering that completes the Philippians offering to God. Paul rejoices that God has used him in the lives of the Philippians. He invites the Philippians to rejoice with him. Part of their joy also appears to be the fact that they have been able to serve God themselves with the the sacrificial service of their faith. Well, thinking back to the Mariner One illustration, we can consider this passage as a reset to our guidance systems, a reminder of our ultimate destination, and our purpose on route. Let's not be like Mariner One, designed to soar into the heavens, but because it followed the wrong guidance, it had to be destroyed. Those of us who are believers are members of God's family. Our destination is heaven. We don't have to follow our misguided natural impulses. Because we have been saved, let's live like members of God's family, live like they're supposed to trusting God, empowered by him, and therefore free to love people without complaining, rejoicing that God is using us to serve others and draw people to Christ. And thus we shall shall be lights in the darkness and shine like stars in the universe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this reminder that you empower us to live lives filled with joy.